My name is Anaya Mitchell, and I'm honored to be reading today's scripture reading from Matthew 27, verse 62 through 26. This is found on page 835 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anaya. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. It's great to see each one of you this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church, and we're delighted that you're here this morning. And let me just extend a very warm welcome to each and every one of you, especially if this is your first time at Christ Community. Maybe you're visiting with a family or uh, you just thought today, I want to go and, and celebrate Easter with a church family. I know visiting a new church isn't always easy, uh, no matter how you got here. And so thanks for being with us, and we hope uh, that you've had a great experience so far this morning and that that will continue. And if you're looking for a church home, um, we would love to be that for you. And hopefully this is a place where you feel the warmth of Christ's love and affection uh, for each and every one of you this morning. Um, as we begin uh, today to look into this passage of Scripture that I read for us and even beyond, um, I'd like to pray and ask that God would be at work um, through uh, the words that He is speaking. Uh, God has spoken in His Word, uh, the Bible, and He continues to speak to us through it today. So let's pray now and ask for him to speak to us. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken and that you continue to speak, that your word is living and active. And I pray that it would be that for us this morning, that your spirit would be at work, um, doing what only he can do. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was uh, probably 10 or 11 years old, I had a nature calendar uh, on my wall as a kid. It wasn't anything fancy. It was probably something that just had come in the mail or picked up at an insurance office or something like that. But, but it had a, a particular picture on it that I remember so clearly, even nearly 25 years later. I remember one of these photographs so clearly, and it was a picture of Glacier National Park. It, it's not this particular picture, but one like it. And it was one of the most beautiful things that I'd ever seen in my 10 years of life at that point. And it evoked such a sense of, of longing and of desire a desire to go to that place, uh, but also a desire for that kind of beauty. It was just kind of, I remember this kind of amazement and awe that, that such places of beauty actually existed. This wasn't a painting. Someone had taken a picture in this place. I could go there. I could visit it. This place existed. And it's actually part of that desire for beauty and longing that's leading our family to take um, a national park road trip adventure. We're actually leaving after church today, and we're going to do um, a bunch of parks. We're, we're piling the family in the car, and we're going to spend uh, about two weeks visiting four national parks, not Glacier this time. I still haven't been. Um, would still like to go, but we're going to do Canyonlands and Arches and Zion and Petrified Forest and can't wait. But, but the trouble is with these experiences is that they're so fleeting, aren't they? 
That, that vacation, it, it ends. And it, it, it scratches the itch, maybe, but in some ways it only makes the itch scratch more. And I remember another experience like this when I was in, in seminary studying in Chicago. During the summer, I would take the, the train to hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra play at Ravinia Park, and, and mostly just because if you had a student ID, they let you in free um, as, a, as a student to hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra play. But I remember one beautiful moonlit evening, and the concert was over, and we were beginning, my friends and I, to kind of collect our, our chairs and picnic blankets and that kind of thing. And the symphony did a surprise encore. It was dark, the moon was out, and the piece they played was Debussy's Claire de Lune. And just like that calendar picture, that night is etched in my memory as one of those moments of beauty and longing, almost transcendence. But no matter how hard I've tried, I've never been able to recreate those moments or go back to them. There's the memory there, but never be able to recreate them. I mean, I've searched Google images for that one picture of Glacier National Park dozens of times, but never been able to find it. I've listened to Claire de Lune probably hundreds of times, but never had quite the same feeling as I did that night in Chicago. And maybe you've experienced this with, you know, maybe I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe it was holding your child for the first time. Maybe it was at a concert that you heard, watching a film. Maybe it was your first kiss. Actually, probably not, right? Those are usually pretty mechanical and awkward. <laughs> but maybe, maybe the first time you fell in love. And no matter what it is, how long or short, short the moment may have been, we're always left longing for more, more of it, aren't we? And yet these experiences, they are so fleeting. And ultimately, even the very best, the most enduring ones, are cut short either by their death or by ours. The moment ends, the experience ends, and finally one day we, we end. As the poet Robert Frost put it, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early, her, her early leaves to flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. So what do we do in the face of this reality of, that we have as human beings? We, we have this sense of longing that beauty creates within us, but it seems so fleeting, and, and one day it ends. What do we do with that part of our human experience? I think there are at least a couple options that, that we have available to us. Um, one is that we can concede that, that ultimately, in the end, there isn't something meaningful to that beauty. It, may, it maybe gives us a sense of longing, but it, there's nothing, it doesn't actually point to something beyond us. And by us, I mean us personally and sort of us as a species. So we can kind of conclude with, with Francis Crick, the famed DNA scientist, that your joys and sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their assorted molecules. As Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased it, you are nothing but a pack of neurons. And while that perspective certainly does make some sense of the science that we know, it doesn't seem to make best sense 
of why we so long for beauty. It doesn't seem to make best sense of why I love my kids the way I do. I mean, the way I love my my daughters seems like so much more than just an evolutionary biological drive to perpetuate the species. It doesn't pass the greeting card test, in other words. Can you imagine the greeting card? Dear son or daughter, happy birthday. I'm glad that our mutual chemical and psychological bond has brought us through another year onward with the species. (laughs) It doesn't work on the anniversary card either. But what if our longing, our longing for more actually pointed us to something more? It's possible, maybe possible, that there's something more. And it's that possibility I want to consider with you this morning. It's a possibility that we find laid out for us in the historical narrative here in the Gospel of Matthew, which is basically a theological biography of Jesus. And in it, we find the story this morning of two women, two women longing for more. And we're going to look at their story, and after we've kind of walked through the story, we're going to make three observations from it at the end. And these two women, you see, they had been friends of Jesus for a long time, and, and now he is dead. They, they had watched it happen. They watched him die. And they didn't think that it was going to end like this. He had been one of the most amazing, perhaps without question, the most amazing person they'd ever been around. They had longed for so much more. They'd hoped for so much more. But now all that was left to do was to grieve, to lament, to mourn. And in the passage that Anaya read for us, the day is Saturday. Jesus died on Friday, was buried. The author of life had given himself over to death. But the religious leaders who had put Jesus to death, they remember, though, how he had predicted that he would come back to life after three days. And of course, no one comes back from the dead, they think, but we don't want anyone to make up a rumor, a lie. We don't want any fake news out there. So let's just make sure nobody takes the body and starts to spread a story. And so Pilate, the governor who had signed Jesus' death sentence, gives them a group of soldiers, seals the tomb with a a mark so it would be obvious it had been tampered with, and, and says, make it as secure as you can. Now it's Sunday morning, the first day of the week. These two women who longed for so much more go to the tomb to grieve and care for the body. And actually, let me just pause here and say this is one of the reasons why I'm convinced that this account that we have in Matthew is actually historical reporting and not just a story that someone has made up because it's the women who are first to the scene of what is going to unfold. And you see in the first century, in the Middle East, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Their testimony wasn't admissible in court. I mean, it, it wasn't great, right? I mean, it was not a good thing. But what it tells us is that if someone at that time was going to make up a story, if you were going to fabricate a story, you wouldn't put women as the one who first find out the news. But as the women enter... They are the first eyewitnesses to what is about to happen. They enter this garden where the tomb was, and they find an incredible sight. Listen to how Matthew describes it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. These are our two women. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This is the scene they walk into, these hardened Roman soldiers laying on the ground, passed out, and an angel is speaking to them. And so they're, they're understandably freaked out, right? When supernatural beings talk to you in a cemetery, that tends to freak you out. And the stone in front of Jesus' tomb, it's rolled away. And again, the, the stone, I think oftentimes we think about the stone being rolled away so that Jesus could get out, but he's already gone. You know, at this point, his, he's able to pass through walls. He's, he's gone. The stone is rolled away. So the women can get in, the eyewitnesses can get in to see the empty tomb. And in, this is what they hear. They hear a good news report, the very first good news report about Jesus being risen from the dead. Jesus is not here. He is risen, just as he said he would. Come, see for yourself, and then go and tell. Jesus' other followers, come and see, and then go and tell. And then with fear and also with great joy... They do just that. They look in the tomb, they see for themselves, and then they run to tell the others what they've seen. But they don't get very far before something even more incredible happens. You can imagine they, they round the bend out of the garden, and all of a sudden there in front of them is Jesus himself. Verse 9 and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Again, I just want to pause here and point out two really significant things about this moment that we can't miss. More details that it convinced me that this truly is a historical account. First, the women fall down on the ground and they take hold of his feet. They, they touch him, his feet. They, they, they haven't encountered a ghost or a spirit. They've encountered a body, somebody, living, resurrected Jesus with a body that can be touched and grasped. That's what resurrection means. The word resurrection always meant bodies. I mean, people in the ancient world were familiar with the idea of spirits and ghosts. They had whole sets of vocabulary to talk about seeing a spirit or a ghost or an apparition. I mean, they had words to talk about that. And they never used the word resurrection to refer to that kind of phenomenon, real or imagined. Whenever the word resurrection was used, it referred to a, a body. This isn't the ghost of Jesus. This is Jesus and it's not that people back then were somehow so much more naive than us. 
I mean, maybe they hadn't split the atom yet, but they knew just as well as we do that dead people don't come back to life. In fact, they had a lot more experience seeing dead bodies than most of us probably ever will. They knew that Jesus hadn't just fainted or passed out. This isn't Jesus kind of beat up on the cross and took a nap in the tomb and then, no, this is someone who had been dead who is now alive. That's the first thing. Second, in those little verses we see, they, they worshipped him. Matthew says they worshipped him. And if one thing defines the Jewish people during the first century is that we do not worship human beings. We do not worship idols. We worship the one true invisible God. As a Jewish person, you did not worship a human being. And yet you have here two pious Jewish women worshiping a human being, God come in the flesh, fully man, fully God. Only something like the resurrection can account for that kind of behavior. And while the two women go and tell Jesus' followers what they've seen, the religious leaders do begin spreading some fake news. Verse 12 they, the religious leaders, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And this little section we just read here gets to the crux of the matter. The religious leaders, they know the tomb is empty. And they also have eyewitness reports of people seeing Jesus alive. This is the problem. If you just have an empty tomb with no eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus raised from the dead, you conclude, of course, somebody just took the body and hid it somewhere else. Or, on the other hand, if you just have people claiming, I saw Jesus alive, but you have a body in the ground, you can easily falsify those reports, right? You just drag the corpse out and say, no, you didn't see him alive, here he is. It's the fact of the empty tomb and the eyewitness reports together that make this so compelling. How do you account for both of those pieces of data? And here we are, 2,000 years and 6,000 miles later. And while I know I can't prove it to you beyond the shadow of a doubt, but go back to where we started at the beginning. What else answers your longings? Matthew tells us this happened the first day of the week at dawn, and it was more than just a Sunday morning. He means the first day of a new world, the eighth day of the week, the first day of a new reality, humanity's best day, because only the resurrection answers the longing. Only Easter answers the longing. You may not believe it, but this, as ridiculous as it may sound, is what brings everything else into focus. It's the one thing that makes sense of everything else. And there are at least three ways this morning that I want to try to show you that I think the resurrection answers some of our deepest longings. First, it gives us a meaning that makes better sense. You see, I'm not only convinced that the resurrection actually happened, but I think it's the one thing that makes the best sense of the world around us. The world in which we live of joy and despair, of love and hate, of life and death. The resurrection, I think, makes best sense of the full human experience. 
I mean, because of course you don't have to be a Christian to have a sense that life is meaningful, but I do think the resurrection and the Christian story makes better sense of our lived experience than any other world do. It's, it's kind of like a giant puzzle, right? You have all these experiences in life, and they're sort of like these puzzle pieces, and as you start fitting them together and finding out how they fit, and you get the borders, and you start filling in the middle, you discover that the puzzle is, is a map, but that right at the center, at the most important crossroads in that map, there's a piece missing. Our sense of longing points us to that missing piece, and the resurrection of Jesus is that missing piece. Not only does it complete the picture, does the map fill in, but the picture completed then makes sense of everything else. We have this map, this complete story that, that actually explains every other aspect of itself. If you'll permit me this morning, a Star Wars illustration. <laughs> and yes, I have already watched the new trailer uh, for the film that's coming out in December, um, but this one is about uh, the film Rogue One. Um, it's a little bit like what happened in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. If you've seen that movie, it's okay if you haven't. But there's a huge question in the original films. If you're a Star Wars, not like I am. There's a huge question in the original film. Why did the Empire design the Death Star with this one exhaust port that could be so easily exploited? And how did the rebels get the plans to exploit it? I mean, these are questions that have haunted fans of the original Star Wars film for a long time, right? <laughs> And Rogue One makes sense of it all. The flaw was there on purpose. The plans were always meant to get out. It makes sense of the story. This is what the resurrection story does for all of life. It makes sense of our feelings of guilt, of our longings for beauty. The world is created in perfection, but when we rebelled against God, death entered. But God himself has come to rescue to make it all right again, to renew the world, bearing the penalty of the, our sins on the cross and crushing death with His resurrection. He said the cure has begun, and we can join Him. Might this be the piece of the puzzle that you're looking for? Second, the resurrection answers our longing for a happiness that isn't an illusion that isn't just a temporary distraction from the pain, the, the loss that is all around us. You see, uh, secularism, which is the, the worldview that essentially removes God from daily life, and even those of us who would consider ourselves Christians as we live in an increasingly secular age, even if you believe in God, it's so easy to feel like He doesn't really affect you. And secularism, that perspective, is really the only known worldview in the history of the world in which individual members have to determine meaning on their own. Are you following that? For the first time ever, you individually have to go out and figure out if life matters and why. Which is interesting given last month's article in the Wall Street Journal. Is for decades, people in the U.S. have been living longer and longer. But recently, even with medical advancements, that age is starting to go down, that people die. People are starting to die earlier on average. And the study shows that driving the uptick are increases in deaths of despair from drugs, alcohol-related liver diseases, and suicide. And one researcher declares it seems to be at about an accumulating despair. In a world where we are increasingly have fewer handles, 
less help in making sense of the world around us, if any sort of lasting happiness begins to elude us. And yes, we can just try to distract ourselves with work or with working for the weekend, seeking to advance our career or getting a raise or building a family or taking the ultimate vacation, but they all come up short. And so we numb. We turn to alcohol or Netflix or Facebook or anything to numb, and despair accumulates. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have access to a happiness that we don't have to suppress and that can't ultimately be stolen from us. Guilt is gone. Hope is here. And He shows us a path to true satisfaction. It's how the women in the story are able to run from the tomb with fear, yes, and also with great joy. I love that because the world is scary, yet if the resurrection has happened, and if that resurrection guarantees the possibility of our resurrection if we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then even our greatest fears, our greatest heartaches, the worst this world can throw at us can be accompanied by great joy. And finally, the resurrection offers us an answer to the longing by giving us a life that doesn't end in death. You see, death is the great enemy that robs us of beauty and meaning and hope and joy and happiness, but the resurrection of Jesus means that death is no longer the end of the story, which means that everything matters Everything matters. It matters for eternity, but not just for eternity. Everything matters in a new way for tomorrow as well. You see, when the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, he was a church leader, he planted a number of churches. One of the churches he planted was in the city of Corinth, and in a letter he wrote called 1 Corinthians, he spends a long time in chapter 15 talking about the resurrection, but where he ends the chapter is by pointing out that because of the resurrection, their work tomorrow, their labor, their work matters. What they do Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5 or 7 to 7, or as a parent, 24-7, will not be in vain. It will not just disappear into a universe that burns itself out slowly over billions of years. I think deep down we all long for it not to end like that. For our lives not to be one more mournful note in a universe that began with a big bang only to go out with a little whimper. You see, the women in our story didn't want it to end either. So the angel gave them a very clear next step. And I want you to do the same this morning. Give you a clear next step, no matter where you're at on your journey. If you're skeptical here, if you're yet curious, intrigued by the story of Jesus, and you realize that if this is true, and I know that's a big if, but if it is, you know that everything changes. So come and see for yourself. Spend time with us a while. Come back. Ask your questions. Ask your toughest questions. Push us, but come and see with us. And for those of you here this morning who do believe, go and tell. We can't keep this news to ourselves. Meaning, happiness, life, forgiveness, hope. Who will you tell? You see, every longing that we have, whenever we experience something truly beautiful, 
It is pointing us to a person and a place. And the person is Jesus, and the place is a renewed Garden of Eden, the Zion that we sang about. You see, every time we hear one of those notes from Claire de Lune, or feel the tug in our hearts and souls as we glimpse a picture of Glacier National Park, we are hearing an echo of the garden and the whisper of a person calling us to himself. The beauty that has always spoken to your heart is drawing you to the ugliness of a Roman cross and to the joy of an empty tomb. Jesus left paradise with his Father and was cast out so that we could be brought in to experience meaning beauty, joy, and life without end. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that today we celebrate the day the world changed forever. The most significant moment since the creation of the new, the creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning is this moment of resurrection, the dawning of this new day. Pray and ask now that you would root that truth deep in our lives and that we would be rooted deeply in it. In Jesus' name, amen.